Hello and welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling, and I'll be with you today as we discuss when it's time to head for the exits. Hi there, it's Pat. Glad to be with you again today. And today we're going to be discussing, is it getting to be time to sell? How do you know when it's the right time to exit your multifamily investment so that you can not only maximize your profits, but manage tax exposure and risk? And we're going to discuss all of those items today. When we're thinking about exiting an asset, there's really a number of different things we want to take a look at. We should have a plan when we buy an asset for how and when we're going to exit that asset. We should be open to opportunities that might present themselves along the way. We want to look at something that we call the non-exit exit. And of course, we need to keep the tax man in mind through all of this. Let's take a look at each of those items. When we buy an asset, we want to have a plan for how we exit. Many of you may have heard an adage that says, well, you make money when you buy. And other people that say, well, you make money when you sell. We believe that you make money, yes, when you buy an asset, and you make money when you operate an asset, and you make money when you sell or exit an asset. You should be looking to make money through the entire process of being involved with that particular asset. When you're going to look at an asset and you're thinking about how you're going to purchase it and how you're going to operate it, you also should be looking at how you're going to exit And there's a lot of different elements that are going to have an impact on what your plan might be. Tax strategy could certainly be part of it. One of the things that we look at is the debt structure associated with it. We work in the commercial space, so our loans are set up with balloons. A five-year balloon, a seven-year balloon, a 10, a 12, something like that. They're 30-year amortizations, but they have a balloon period. If you're purchasing a single-family home or maybe a duplex, you may be acquiring that with more residential-type debt, consumer debt. And you may or may not have those balloon structures associated with it. So that's something to keep in mind. We want to be in a position when we purchase an asset so that we have a window of opportunity as opposed to one day that we have to exit. So, for example, we would prefer generally not to have simply a five-year balloon Uh, that only gives us about a six-month window. We like having longer-term debt that not only gives us a chance to exit over some period of time, but it also gives us a potential of potentially holding the asset if we'd like to do that, or at least having maybe a year, year and a half, two years in which we could exit. That's one of the items that fits into what the plan would be. Another is taxes. Now, we're not talking about the taxes associated with gains, We're talking about taxes associated with the losses that can be generated in real estate and how those can be beneficial. Remember when we've talked about the total return that you can experience from a real estate investment, one of those components is the tax advantages. And there are unique tax advantages that real estate has that you don't experience in other assets. For example, when you invest in a bond, or even a mortgage that's held and secured against a piece of commercial real estate, while you get income, 
you don't get a K-1, a tax document, saying you lost money. So you don't have any real tax protection or tax advantage for those particular dollars. When you're invested in a piece of multifamily real estate, and this is true if you invest with a firm like Mara Poling or if you're investing on your own in a single-family home or a duplex or a fourplex that you're going to manage yourself, you will not only have the normal items of uh, expense that you'll be able to write off, you'll also be able to write off depreciation. And that depreciation can be substantial during the first few years, especially if you use a cost segregation study as we do. Uh, We talk a little bit more about that in one of our other podcasts. We're not going to go into that in great detail here. Suffice it to say, we lose a lot of money for tax purposes during the early uh, hold period. If we plan an exit at year two or year three, which we would look at sort of a flip kind of an asset, then we're still leaving some tax advantages on the table because there are significant tax advantages through year four, year five, really even year six and year seven. So we like the idea of a five-year hold as as a typical kind of plan. Uh, There are some assets that the plan might be a little longer, specifically if there's an assumption of debt. That's something that could figure into your plan and something you'd want to keep in mind. There's also the kind of improvements that you're going to make. I talked about a flip a moment ago. So if you're looking to purchase an asset, and again, this might be true if you're buying a single-family home that you're going to rent, you might purchase an asset, put some sweat equity into it, get it leased, and then fairly quickly try and sell that and sell that to another uh, individual that wants to have an investment in real estate but doesn't want to do any of the hard lifting to get that asset in shape. So that might be a flip strategy for you. Uh, nothing wrong with doing that kind of investment. There are some additional risks because you're playing a little more of a timing game uh, in, in, terms of, in terms of that. Uh, your debt structure may be a little different and you're not taking advantage of all the tax advantages Uh, You also potentially have some tax exposure when you sell the asset on the back end. Uh, Doesn't mean that that's a bad asset or a bad investment. It's just different than the kind of uh, uh, low-risk, positive return investment that we're looking to create in our environment. Have a plan. Don't buy an asset or invest in a firm like Mara Poling that doesn't have a plan for how it's going to exit each of the individual assets. That's one of the key elements that you want to make sure gets addressed. Having said that, be open to opportunity. In our portfolio, the assets that we've held over time, we've had unsolicited offers on uh, maybe almost all the properties. There might be one uh, as I go through the list in my head that we haven't received uh, an offer on yet. Uh, but the vast majority of our assets, we have received unsolicited offers to purchase them. Some of them we've uh, discounted and simply said, no, thank you. Uh, It doesn't really present any upside above and beyond what we're already earning in terms of return on that particular asset. Others are, in fact, very attractive offers, and we then move forward and sell that asset prematurely before our plan. So we might have a plan for a five-year exit uh, sometime in year three after we've made our improvements to the asset. Someone comes along and they're willing to pay us the year five exit price or even a year six price. And based on the math that we do, and again, it's all math, uh, if we can come out with a better return 
and do so in a way in which we can manage the risk associated with that transaction and in particular the taxes associated with it, uh, then we'll go ahead and move forward and do that. So an opportunistic exit is always a possibility for any asset that you're going to be invested with. And that's something to keep in mind. So you've got a plan when you go in. And then in addition to that plan, you want to be open to any potential opportunities to move that asset prematurely. I mentioned when we started the conversation today uh, a number of different ways to exit. And one of those is the non-exit exit. So you might be thinking, all right, Pat, what are you, what are you talking about here? That doesn't make any sense. Let me explain. When we have an asset that we've purchased, and again, let's talk about this five-year uh, time horizon, uh, and let's look at it from the standpoint of maybe having longer-term debt as an example. So maybe I've got a 10-year balloon or even a 12-year balloon on it. That still gives me an opportunity in year five to transition out of the asset, uh, and the purchaser could not only purchase our uh, asset and assume the loan, but then they could put a supplemental uh, effectively a second mortgage on it that uh, that takes them back up to the same loan to value that we had in the beginning and makes the asset work really well for them. One of the advantages to doing that is we're in a relatively low rate uh, interest rate market right now uh, for for debt. Uh, and if we think five years from now, uh, rates will be higher, which that's probably a reasonable assumption. Who knows how much higher, but we think it's reasonable to assume that they will go up over time because we're at fairly historic lows, then there'd be some advantageous market forces if we were able to do that. So we're looking at a five-year hold on a property that we have a 30-year note with a 12-year balloon on it. And again, we're open to an opportunistic exit. We start our improvement program, our value-add program, and it runs through year one and through year two. And we get into year three, and we begin to stabilize the asset. Uh, we get a really solid trailing 12 set of financials that shows all those new improvements. And we've gone from uh, a purchase loan-to-value of 70 or 75%. We've invested capital uh, improvement dollars, which maybe has brought our effective loan-to-value down into the 60s. And now we have improvements that we've made that have increased the value of the asset. And we're maybe in the 50% range in terms of loan-to-value, possibly even down into the 40s. And that's, that's, a, that's a bright red line for us. If we start getting not just to 50, but in particular, if we get below 50%, we start looking at the fact that now we have lazy equity. We want to be modestly leveraged. It's part of our uh, move risk off the table strategy, and it's something we would encourage you to look at. doesn't mean you have to do, but we certainly think you ought to take a look at how your asset might perform over time. Again, whether you're doing this yourself or investing with a firm like us, how the asset might perform over time with modest amounts of leverage. That allows you to perform well during the economic uh, cycle, the entire cycle, including recessions. Uh, it also helps you sleep well at night, right? Because you're going to have a nice cushion between the cash flow that the property generates in a normal environment and the minimum cash flow it has to have in order to be able to pay all the bills, including the debt service. That's somewhere in probably the 
low 70s, maybe 60% range. When you get down into the 50s, that's still not an untenable position to be in. You start getting into the 40s, and there is clearly some lazy equity, meaning there is equity in that asset that's not really doing anything for you. It's not providing any additional uh, risk mitigation because you've already gotten that covered from the others, and you're not generating any additional uh, cash flow because of that. We don't really want to be in that position for a terribly long period of time. A short period of time is not a big deal. If we get to a position of having some lazy equity at the beginning or middle of year four, well, we're going to look to transition in another six months. That's nothing we're going to go run around and do anything on. But if it's in year three, and this might be an asset we would hold through year six or even year seven, then we probably don't want to leave that sitting there. And so as opposed to selling the asset, which would be one of the options, we'll do the non-exit exit, which is a refinance or a supplemental loan. And that's a function of how the original loan is structured as to which way that it is. But we would look to take some of that lazy equity out, get our loan to value, if not all the way back to the 70 75% we started with, at least back into the 60s, which potentially means we're taking a million, two million, three million dollars out of an asset, and that's enough for us to either go purchase another asset or to invest in another asset that we already own and inc- improve the performance of that asset by doing a value-add uh, improvement that's financed by this particular uh, investment. So you absolutely want to have a plan for how you're going to exit your asset. Uh, And if you're making an investment in a firm like us, you want to understand what the exit strategy is uh, for the assets that are held. Be open to opportunity so that if an opportunity comes along to take advantage of that earlier, you want to be able to do that. There may be situations where exits look like a good thing to do But for whatever reason, whether it's market conditions or simply the fact that you like the asset and you want to hold on to it longer to wring a little more uh, value out of it, uh, a refinance, uh, the non-exit exit might make sense. The final component we want to take a look at, and it's true for each of these, is what are the tax consequences? When we think about the total return associated with an asset, We want to be in a position where we've got a stable investment. We want it to be secure. Those are a couple of the factors we've just talked about relative to risk. We also want to make sure that we can optimize the cash return and the equity growth or the total return on that asset. And the final component of that is the tax advantages. There are some very unique tax advantages that real estate provides that you don't get with equities, that you don't get with bonds, that you don't get with commodities, and so on. One of those tax advantages is the ability to write off depreciation. What that means is when we buy an asset, there's a portion of the purchase price that is tied to the improvement, right? So the structure of the building, the interiors, all of the things that were built there, not the land, but all of the items that were built there. And that is written off over some period of time. That depreciation allows us to shelter some of the income that is produced uh, during the first few years of that asset. Because of the way we go about doing it, and we would suggest that everyone at least look at this, it may or may not be cost-effective for you, it is for our assets, we perform a study in which we are able to build 
very accurate depreciation schedules that allow us to take the depreciation during the appropriate time frames, which is significantly more advantageous than simply straight lining it over 27 and a half years. That means that we are going to have some tax losses uh, at, at best and at a minimum at least some tax protection, some tax sheltering during year one, two, three, and through years four, five, and maybe even the beginning of six and seven. For that reason, we plan a five-year hold because we want to take full advantage of those uh, tax benefits that, again, are only available for real estate. That's one of the reasons we look at a five-year hold as opposed to, for example, doing 18-month or two-year holds, you know, kind of flipping uh, properties. Another reason we look at a five-year hold that's tied to taxes is the long-term gains possibility of uh, tax treatment. So if I'm holding an asset for a very short period of time, uh, I may not be subject to long-term gains, right? So if I'm going to buy a property, fix it up, and I'm going to flip it within a year, I'm not going to be able to get long-term gains treatment for that. So I want to be in a position where I can get long-term gains treatment. That means getting beyond a year. All right, well, many multifamily investments are going to be longer than a year. The short-term ones might be 18 or 24 or 36 months, something like that. We're a little more of a mid-range focus at five years. Some are longer term. The reason for, we think, looking at a five-year hold is if you do a three-year one, you're exposed to a little more of the timing issues associated with the marketplace. The other is this, is in a three-year environment, it may be more challenging to execute a 1031 exchange. If you are not familiar with a 1031, you absolutely want to learn about it as part of your process of learning about how to invest in real estate. A wonderful benefit that only real estate has is you can, when you sell an asset, take the gain from that asset and move that gain effectively into another asset that you purchase with the proceeds from that sale, and that allows you to defer that tax into the future. Someday, you got to pay the piper. That tax will eventually come due, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So you're not getting out of paying tax, at least not fully. Uh, What you are getting is effectively an interest-free loan from the state and federal government, depending upon which state you live in, in which you're able to then keep that money working for you to grow the asset more, to generate more cash, and so on. To do that, there are a number of very specific requirements that need to be met. Uh, We can go into that in more detail with you. Uh, You can come to... Uh, our website, the Learning Center at marapoling.com. That's M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And you can learn more about uh, 1031 exchanges and some of the tax advantages uh, with real estate. There are some timing issues, and those timing issues can be challenging to meet. If you are doing a short-term investment, two or three years, it is highly unlikely that those are structured to be executed as a 1031. They're usually everybody gets in, uh, you make your money, and then everybody gets out. And when you get out, you've got a tax bill to pay. 
so you might have a higher return. There's also higher risks associated with those investments. So you may have a higher return, and you're going to be subject to some tax that over a five-year hold that's followed by a 1031, so it becomes effectively potentially a 10-year hold or a 15 through these multiple run uh, uh, flips that you do, the multiple reinvestments, you may experience a very different kind of tax exposure, which you take the modest return with a lot of tax benefits, compare that to a higher return with some tax exposure, you potentially end up with very similar after-tax returns and yet a lower risk uh, with the longer-term strategy that we employ. One thing about those 1031s is you'll hear us often talk about first-generation assets, second-generation, and so on. So when we purchase assets, if they're the initial assets we purchase, for example, in a fund, we refer to those as first-generation. When we go through a 1031 exchange, we're then looking at second-generation assets and third-generation and so on. And that's one of the ways that we kind of keep track of all of that. I I said that um, you're deferring tax, you're not eliminating tax. And that is true with some exceptions. One, I can tell you today with complete certainty what the capital gains rate is today. I can't tell you what it's going to be tomorrow. And actually, given the current political environment and what's potentially afoot in Washington relative to tax code, I have no idea what it might be 12 months from now, 36 months from now, five years from now. Capital gains historically has always been less than ordinary income rates. There has always been a benefit to capital gains treatment. And we have no reason to believe that that won't continue into the future. We have also seen changes in the capital gains rates. Sometimes they've moved up and they have moved down. So let's say that we have a scenario some number of years from now where we see a significant reduction in capital gains rates, maybe even a short-term capital gains holiday. Again, my crystal ball is as good as yours, and none of them are accurate, right? None of us know exactly what's going to happen in the future. Were we to see a significant reduction or short-term elimination of capital gains taxes, we would look at harvesting those gains by selling those assets, not rolling those gains over via 1031s, and we would then distribute funds to investors, pay the little if no tax that's available, and then immediately start the deferral process again because it's most likely that that pendulum may swing back in the other direction. You can only do this kind of work with real estate. You can't do it with a stock. So you've invested in ABC stock. Uh, you put $100,000 in. It's now worth $150,000. You sell that stock. At best, you're going to get capital gains treatment. You can't 1031 it. You can't sell that stock and say, well, I'm going to buy XYZ stock. Can I take my 50000 in gain and simply roll it for tax purposes into this next one? No, you can't. That's not allowed. Uh, That doesn't mean that equities are bad to invest in. I've got money in equities. Uh, It's absolutely part of a well-diversified portfolio, as is commercial real estate. And that's something we strongly encourage everyone to look at. And within commercial real estate, we believe multifamily uh, is the space to make sure you're in. Uh, You certainly can add others, but multifamily really needs to be the one that, if you're going to look for one, uh, look at the multifamily space. So, 
The whole issue of taxes has a lot to do with how you plan your exit. Are you going to work to take all of the tax advantages you can associated with that asset from a depreciation standpoint? That would lead you to probably a five to seven year hold period, something like that that you'd be planning. Are you going to look to do a 1031 exchange or to, again, to be investing in assets that are managed that way, which defer those taxes and present the potential to minimize, if not eliminate, those taxes? And then there's one last element that we would be remiss if we didn't mention, and that is uh, we, we all are humans, which is, uh, which is a wonderful thing, right? It's a great to be a human being. Uh, one of the things it means to be a human being is uh, while we've had wonderful lives, we will all die someday. And that's a sad thing, uh, certainly. We will miss all of our loved ones. Uh, there is something very nice that happens uh, from our friends at the IRS <laughs> when that day comes, and that's called a step-up in basis. So dependent upon how you have structured your assets and how you hold title to them and so on, and these are the kinds of things you want to be talking to your tax advisor about and your estate attorney, and if you don't have those things, you need to go get those things as part of putting your plans together. Uh, it is possible that when you pass on, your assets will have a step-up in basis, which could potentially wipe out some of these uh, deferred tax liabilities. Again, I'm not your tax advisor. I'm not a tax advisor. Uh, your tax advisor will know your particular situation and will be able to help you understand how you might benefit from all of these, again, whether you're investing with a firm like Mara Poling or whether you're doing this on your, uh, on your own. When is it time to head for the exits? Well, we think you ought to have a plan and that the assets you invest in should have a planned exit. There should be an opportunity to look at opportunistic exits along the way. There's always the chance to do a non-exit exit and pull lazy equity out of an asset to get it working hard for you again. And every one of these strategies should be looked at through the uh, rose-colored glasses, if you will, of what's the tax advantages associated with them. Because as we've said, there are tax advantages in each of these situations that exist because this is commercial real estate that you wouldn't have if you were invested in some other kind of, of asset. I really am glad that you were able to join us today. Please go to the website, the Learning Center at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com, Take a look at the page that says when it's time to head for the exits. You'll find a video there. You'll find our white paper. You can register for updates. Uh, there's a lot of other great material on the website. Take a look all around. We have a host of great podcasts for you on the channels here for you to take advantage of. We're very dedicated to education. If you have questions, we'd be happy to spend some time with you one-on-one -on -one and help you better understand how the world of commercial multifamily real estate works so that you can make informed decisions about how you include that in your investment portfolio. Thanks again for joining us today. I look forward to seeing you next time on Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. <music>